Greetings, everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste and salam alaikum. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for tuning in to another broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texas. Broadcast by Tex. I am Tex. Broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most Gulf Coast of Texas. It is my pride and privilege to be doing so. Thank each and every single one of you. Listeners new and old, listeners from the past and into the future. From every place in space and time. Thank each and every one of you for those who have supported me throughout the years. And hopefully forever into the future as well. Today we're going to be talking about the Cola Wars. The real life corporate war that is actually uh, worth studying in terms of if you're a fan of cyberpunk, if you're a fan of corporate dystopians, uh, capitalist dystopia, um, if you're a fan of that Ayn Rand type objectivist, um, you know, lore, the mythos of uh, corporations acting like satellite states or nation states, stateless countries, uh, the idea of the corporation beyond memetics and the self-driving almost uh, superorganism that seeks to both make profits as well as control markets. If you like the history of both businessmen in terms of uh, strategies and uh, playing off the competitors and opponents, etc., that, that real-life chess game for billions of dollars, you know, real stakes type uh, reality. If you also like, you know, the, the the eccentric and the obscure, as well as the novelty and the pop culture, you know, you like, you know, you want to get into this kind of uh, understanding reality uh, a little better, you know, alternative, but you don't want to study the nightmare fuel, not safe for life. Uh, subjects that I typically talk about or have, you know, we all in gestalt fields talk about. I highly recommend studying the Cola Wars. It's uh, 100% as rewarding as it is entertaining and educationally eye-opening as to human nature and the nature of, you know, life itself even the life of tulpas and memetics and corporations and in their the rules they set and follow for their survival you see the repetition in creating life forms organisms that operate as competitively as any ecology any eco web in the ecosystem. And then being nothing more than the producers, the controller of Praxis, as well as the, um, from what starts just simply as the controlling and distributors of a, you know, manufacturers and distributors of a product, cola, canned soda drink. that you get the employment of psychological 
operations. You get the employment of government lobbying. You get the infiltration of foreign markets. You get the overt capitalization of both real-world politics as well as the influence of a real-world politics. Um, as a little bit of a spoiler alert and everything, I have two very well-made third-party documentaries for everyone's purposes, so you know it's just not my word and everything like that. I, I know uh, one of the things is the, the, the big... Uh, the big uh, shill thing to say in the comments and everything. I remember I censor all the comments before I publish it, and I decide which ones get published, is that I don't provide enough sources or citations. Well, I will include most sources and citations I can find, at least cute little, you know, summaries of them. Um, you know, well I can on all of my videos moving forward. So I will include third-party uh, audio and everything to kind of reiterate and, you know, elaborate on certain points. That being said, a little bit of a spoiler, you'll be hearing about how Pepsi is um, the first American product to be sold in the Soviet Union and was uh, carefully chosen to be so, uh, much to the detriment of Coca-Cola, because almost as of a punishment, Coca-Cola had been making uh, Coca-Cola uh, as Fanta, for the uh, Nazis. And this was remembered by the Soviet Union. And so to politically maneuver around that controversy, which is an open secret, mind you. This is not, nothing of this is top secret. Just a little bit of research can show you the reality, the dark sides of things, especially our most beloved corporate icons and mascots. Uh, but also the almost uh, weaponization and, and control from this this like you know deep state level on something as innocent as soda or Coca Cola or pop wherever you come from everyone loves it we all have different names for it but it's been around far longer than all of us it's in our veins nowadays in the modern world to drink these. Coca-Cola soft drinks that are no matter what country you're from. So saying it's even uh, specifically American, because that is, it is, would be incorrect. It's modern. The modern world is fueled by Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Now myself drink only... Um, third-party produced uh, H-E-B brand Coca-Cola flavored uh, cola drink, basically. So I, I don't have a dog in the race, but I am a Coca-Cola man. Uh, and that is because partly Pepsi uses aborted fetuses in their food. Um... But it's not like Coca-Cola is any more innocent. It's been using weapons of mass addiction since its inception with uh, uh, <laughs> both cocaine and uh, chemical agent 7X and merchandise number 5. But I still think it is a high road <laughs> to take rather than eating uh, stem cells basically blended up 
uh, human fetuses, human babies. And that's that shit's true. You can look that up. You can look that fucking shit up. But let's get into it. Let's talk about it. But a full disclosure, I am Team Coca-Cola. The Coca-Cola tribe. But of course, you have the right to choose your own sides. In this real-life corporate war. That history has called the Cola Wars. The Cola Wars are a long-time rivalry between soft drink producers the Coca-Cola Company and PepsiCo, who have engaged in mutually targeted marketing campaigns for the direct competition between each company's product lines, especially their flagship colas, Coca-Cola and Pepsi. This distinguishes it from just competitive companies within the same market, as each actively are aware of the other and seek to demonstrate their superiority over the other through exclusive brand deals and the implementation of public relations things like the Pepsi Challenge, which seek to discredit and assert the superiority of one product over the other. Beginning in the late 1970s and into the 1980s, the competition was especially fierce with the flagship colas Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Becoming the two most dominant soft drinks in the world. The competition escalated until it became known popularly as the Cola Wars. In 1886, John Stith Pemberton, a pharmacist from Atlanta, Georgia, developed the original recipe for Coca-Cola. By 1888, control of the recipe was acquired by Asa Griggs Candler, who in 1896 founded the Coca-Cola Company. Two years later, in 1898, Caleb Bradham renamed his Brad's Drink, quote-unquote, to Pepsi-Cola, quote-unquote, and formed the Pepsi-Cola Company in 1902 prompting the beginning of the Cola Wars. Although it wasn't really at the scale or even at the reality of it is today because the truth of the matter is Pepsi-Cola was a struggling, small-time operation at first produced literally in-house and at maximum only producing 20,000 gallons for their local market. Coca-Cola, though, at this time was already bottling and being distributed all along the Atlantic coast and into the Western territories. You could find it in California as well as New York City, for example. And it was being sold in pharmacists that were aggressively marketed by salesmen who would travel the country to different soda shops and soda bars. It was also a pioneer in the idea of a vending machine mass marketing setup where they would stock and control the profits and proceeds from a vending machine you know where they placed it etc in these public places 
you know, as well as serving it in diners, soda shops, uh, etc. Restaurants. So Coca-Cola, even at its inception by the 1900s, was dominating American tastes. And, and this was mostly due to the fact that it was using weapons of mass addiction. Coca-Cola, the original recipe, had cocaine. Uncut, pure cocaine as the secret ingredient. Not even not so secret ingredient. Coca-Cola was made from the coca leaf. And it was marketed as such even to children, but especially towards women. And was quickly becoming that sweet little, uh, what does they call it? Uh, uh, cherry wine or uh, soda wine. A sweet little pick-me-up that was sold for its intoxicating purposes. It was super cheap and affordable, so anyone could afford it. From the very poor, you know, working class to the very rich debutantes. It was fizzy. It was fun to drink. It was sweet. Unlike alcohol, it was sweet and palatable. And picked you up. It was speed. Whereas other intoxicants like mixed drinks, cocktails, etc. were becoming very negatively associated around America. From rural communities and religious communities in the city. As being intoxicating, and intoxication as being ungodly and wasteful. No one wanted to be stumbling around and slurring because they had some lunch martinis and then pass out early. They wanted to have all night dance parties. They wanted to go to the sock hop. They wanted to go, uh, you know, fool around for hours and stuff with their friends. And Coca Cola with cocaine in it was 100%. The drink of choice for teenagers and children and young adults. From its inception, that's why soda parlors, sock hops, delis, etc. It's 100% the dominated youth culture. It was one of the first products to do that. And it's fucking, um, you know, why Coca-Cola was also marketed towards um, children with the advent of Santa Claus. As well as the creation of things like um, the the iconic look of it, and it and it's uh, you know advertisement, it's merchandising for people who don't know. Santa Claus was famously painted red, white, and black so that he could appear like a Coca Cola bottle. This is one hundred percent fact. It's not even controversial fact. It's just. Taken as one of those things like, yes, this is America. It was completely controlled and operate Like, things like that only existed because of money, businesses who sought to make a profit. Those are your cherished childhood memories. That's, those become iconic uh, American mythos and sacrosanct, you know, iconography and things like that. The idols of the 20th century. But that was invented by the Coca-Cola advertising department. You know, this was this was 100% to make money by selling it to children. A drink that had cocaine in it.
The two companies continue to introduce new and contemporary advertising techniques, such as Coke's first celebrity endorsement and the 1915 edition of the Contour Bottle, which is now classic. This is until market instability following World War I forced Pepsi to declare bankruptcy in 1923. In 1931, Pepsi went bankrupt once more, but recovered and began selling its products at an affordable five cents per bottle, reigniting the cola wars through today. Pepsi offered to sell out to Coca-Cola following both of its bankruptcies during this time, but Coca-Cola declined each time. They are kicking themselves in the ass for that decision, or for those decisions, no doubt, as Pepsi has grown into an even more profitable in its smaller territories of operation. It's very dynamic. Profitable, like the Sunni and Shia Muslim divide, the Coca Cola company and its sphere of influence and its loyal drinking base is larger by almost a vast majority, by, by, by about two thirds. But the PepsiCo are like the Shia, they seem to operate on a more advanced level. They seem to be, uh, while, you know, smaller, more profitable, and more vertically integrated, having, you know, in the current world, reached out and bought major food chains in America, such as Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, KFC, etc., and even created the phenomenon of combining these restaurants, which their only connection is serving Pepsi, under the same roof. America, in many cities and tourist places, have like combined Taco Bell Pizza Huts or uh, combined KFC uh, Taco Bells and things like that. Uh, this is extremely successful. So... While a smaller soda company, Pepsi-Cola also has um, more committed advertising campaigns and celebrity endorsements. So now they are basically evenly matched. Although Coca-Cola is larger, more profitable, is quote-unquote more successful, and is currently strategically winning, quote-unquote, this endless forever war. This real-life corporate war in the real-life cyberpunk world that we live in in the 21st century, which has its roots in the 19th century. You know, just like Cyberpunk 27-7, it goes into the uh, 19th century, and these people and these figures created these corporations. These corporations in the 20th century became basically small, independent nation-states, and... They got they have as much power in their own sphere of influence, the creation of soda and Coca-Cola, as you know can be imagined, and they have engaged in a real-life corporate war that has lasted for over a century. Short of actually murdering each other, killing each other, etc., with uh, mercenaries, which we don't know that they do not engage in during the um, raw product resource gathering stage, as well as the transportation of that stage in the third world. Um, we do know for a fact that Coca-Cola pays an ordinate amount to security, private military companies, etc., because a lot of their operations 
are in uh, places with, like, you know, civil war, domestic terrorism, like in Africa, etc. And in some places in Africa, it's easier to find Coca-Cola in a bottle. And it's easier to find Coca-Cola bottled water than it is to actually find natural water or running water from any kind of tap or municipality system. They don't have running water in Africa, but they all have ice-cold Coca-Cola in vending machines. Because in these places, Coca-Cola enforces, and it's a, it's a part of the, it's almost by law, that and Nestle and things like that, they enforce their products to be consumed by the local population with the with the the hiring of you know the local warlords civil governments juntas etc like that to provide security for their corporate salesmen their businessmen you know their merchandise their trucks and that's just the reality of it this is a real life corporate war but it could have ended in nineteen or in yeah, nineteen twenty-three and in nineteen thirty-one. If Coca-Cola had just bought out their competitor at their weakest. But this is also argued that this was one, Pepsi Cola's original intention was to create a product and then sell it, you know, once large enough to Coca-Cola, like people nowadays create apps and uh, websites and web services to sell them, you know, specifically to get successful and then to sell them to larger companies, making your real profits there and then disassociating with it, you know, retiring fat, basically. And at that time, it was seen as, you know, such an obvious ploy that Coca-Cola didn't need it. But as I said before, they are kicking themselves in the ass for they let that small snake grow into a mighty, mighty cobra. That really is sinking its fangs and the global, you know, market basically having taken over, you know, one third, almost two thirds, almost one half of it, basically. But as I said before, Coca-Cola is proving itself to just be more globally popular. So in the in the global scale, they're winning the world war, but but they definitely Pepsi Cola is definitely still swinging, and it's like the Shia and Sunni. Sunni are bigger, Shia may be less, uh, far less in population and in territory, but some would say more dynamically, you know, powerful and active in their smaller sphere of influence. These advertising strategies of theirs can be summarized as Coca-Cola is historically focused on a wholesomeness and nostalgia aspect. Once again, controlling childhoods. Coca-Cola advertising is often characterized as family-friendly and often relies on cute characters. The Coca-Cola polar bear's mascot is internationally beloved. And the modern image of Santa Claus, especially in America, proudly adorns it's Christmas bottling and canning op- uh, advertising and was created originally by them as well. During all the history of the century, the New Coke debacle is one of the more famous 
acts in corporate capitalist history in terms of utter disaster and misjudging of the market. Changing a classic recipe to suit a quote-unquote modern market would most likely to cut costs and the production of these original recipe due to the uh, increasing prices of like real sugar, etc. A distinctly different tasting new Coke was released in April 1985 and was subject to one of the most heated public backlashes of anything in the corporate and capitalistic history outside of massive disaster. You know, contamination of wildlife or massive loss of life like an oil spill or something. Thousands and thousands of letters were sent in. Millions of people were upset, to say the very least. And this is a time before the internet. This is 1985. There's really no way to accurately gauge the figures or the intensity of the backlash, but by July 11th, 1985, Coca-Cola completely relented, reintroduced Coca-Cola's classic recipe as Coca-Cola Classic, and eventually phased out within that year New Coke entirely. This was a huge humiliation in the short term, but in the long term, it proved to be almost essentially crucial to their continued success and prosperity, and in fact, even their position as the more dominant company in the Pepsi-Cola-Coca-Cola war. Because this return to Coca-Cola Classic gave them a positive spin as being you know, uh, aware and sensitive to their audience, to their customer base, to their um, basically chattel slaves, <laughs> to, their, to their addicts and fiends. giving them that sense of democracy that they always love, especially in the 80s, that people, through their, through their voices and boycotts and buying power, controlled or had some control over these billion-dollar companies. And it wasn't for the fact that the billionaires just wanted to keep making billions of dollars, but it was because of the fact that they released these like old-timey, you know, like the CEO was like, we heard you, we listened, we're sorry, you know, like type thing, uh, apology videos. And then introduce the Coca-Cola Classic on the market, right? But they, old customers who hadn't drinking Cokes in years, people who had given them up for health reasons, people who had given them up because of um, various other reasons, choosing different drinks or whatever, uh, brands, returned in flocks. And what they had been losing in the last few years that prompted the decision to re- change the, the recipe and re- pursue this new advertising, the new Coke in 1985, returned, and then some. And so ultimately, in the long run, Coca-Cola benefited greatly from this. And then now the return to Coca-Cola Classic is seen as equally as a masterstroke in the 20th century uh, corporatism, corporate world, just as the new Coke is seen as a disastrous, you know, blunder. 
Some have even argued that this is a conspiracy and was an actual psychological operation to shock and rattle everyone's cage, as it were, and make them come crawling back to Coca-Cola, <laughs> who reminded them that they control an essential addiction and a fundamental experience that of tasting and drinking Coca-Cola. The Coca-Cola company vehemently denies this claim. Pepsi advertising throughout the years is heavily supported by strategic sponsorships and online marketing campaigns. Pepsi's logo utilizes the red, white, and blue colors of the flag of the United States, for example, which has always been drawing on a strong sense of patriotism throughout its branding, July 4th, for example, as well as association with American flags and the American government and military. In 1975, they introduced the Pepsi Challenge, a revolutionary advertisement campaign based on ordinary people being asked which product they preferred in a blind taste test. The campaign suggested that when it came down to taste alone, as of those scientifically provable, consumers preferred Pepsi over Coca-Cola. This prompted Coca-Cola's creation of the successful Diet Coke campaign in 1982 to counter this, saying that its Cokes had less sugar, less calories, and were geared to a more active and healthy lifestyle. The Pepsi Challenge was a marketing campaign and not a scientific study. It was later proven. With things like the Pepsi being served to customers, being served much, much colder than the lukewarm and sometimes flat Coca-Cola samples. This essential rigging of the Pepsi challenge was intentionally done because all studies on the market have always found that only modest differences between Pepsi and Coke in their recipes exist and consumers generally find both Enjoyable. No one's spitting out a Pepsi because they like Coca-Cola. And no one's spitting out a Coca-Cola if you give it to, and they like Pepsi. It's basically whatever restaurant is serving you that cola. And really the campaign comes down to distribution of vending machines, the control of markets through exclusive contracts, such as, you know, Pe- Pepsi owning Taco Bell, owning KFC, owning Pizza Hut, and thus owning the, Coca- the cola, the soda machines, and the syrup generating their revenue by selling it to them. Its vertical integration is basically creating a monopoly. And Coca-Cola aggressively pursuing things like, um, you know, enforcing brand loyalty or monopolies in entire markets such as the Philippines, um, in Africa, as before mentioned, or in Latin America, especially Mexico, to generate the profits to sustain its global empire. 
that yes, in Mexico, there are some places where you cannot find a Pepsi because the entire city is owned by Coca-Cola. Two other famous things that have occurred during the advertising campaign blitzes are the Pepsi stuff. The 1990s saw Pepsi launch a most successful long-term strategy in the Cola Wars history called the Pepsi stuff. Using the slogan, drink Pepsi, get stuff, consumers collected Pepsi points on packages and cups, which could be redeemed for free Pepsi merchandise, effectively turning drinking Pepsi into a competition that could be won for prizes. After researching and testing the program for over two years to ensure that it resonated with consumers, Pepsi launched Pepsi Stuff, which was an instant success. Due to its success, the program was expanded to include Mountain Dew and Pepsi's international markets worldwide. The company continued to run the program for many years, continually innovating with new features each year, eventually leading to the fiasco of people... Of, of first, the company... Promising a Harrier jump jet as one of the prizes, and then a consortium of investors seeking to cash in on this Harrier jump jet with loopholes in the Pepsi Point system, which saw a legal case, Leonard versus PepsiCo Incorporated, which you could find details of online. Or in the 2022 Netflix show, Pepsi Where's My Jet. One of the latest intense battles between the Cola Wars occurred in Super Bowl L3. I'm assuming that's 33. It was played in Atlanta, which is where Coca-Cola had its head office. In 2019, Pepsi had been a major sponsor of the NFL for years, most recently renewing its sponsorship deal in 2011. Pepsi advertising tied to the game poked fun at the situation with slogans such as Pepsi in Atlanta, how refreshing, and hey Atlanta, thanks for hosting, we'll bring the drinks, and look who's in town for Super Bowl 33. Both companies ran television ads during the Super Bowl as Coca-Cola aired the commercial as a Coke is a Coke just before the Super Bowl's national anthem while Pepsi ran a series of ads with the tagline, Is Pepsi Okay? To be aware of the stretch and implication of this, like the, the actual territory of these companies, or run through some of the products that they own. PepsiCo is the creator of Pepsi-Cola, Diet Pepsi, Pepsi Light, Pepsi Max, Pepsi One, Pepsi Zero, Sugar Pepsi Next, Pepsi True, Caffeine Free Pepsi, Pepsi Wild Cherry, Doc 360, Barandia, Tropicana, Twister, Tango, Slice, Crush, which is orange soda, Sierra Mist, 7-Up, Mountain Dew, Patio Ginger Ale, Citrus Blast Grapefruit Drink, Mug Root Beer, cr- Mug Cream Soda, Tropicana Dole, Lipton Brisk, Iced Tea, Pure Leaf Iced Tea, 
Gatorade Sport Drink, Propel Sport Drink, Amp Energy Drink, Rockstar Energy Drink, Sting Energy Drink, Mountain Dew Brand Energy Drinks, Kickstart Energy Drinks, Aquafina Bottled Water, and Bubbly Sparking Water. The Coca-Cola Company produces Coca-Cola Cola, Diet Coke, Coca-Cola Light, Coca-Cola Zero Sugar, Caffeine-Free Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola Cherry Flavored, Mr. Pib, Pib Extra, Fanta Minute Made, Simply Orange Juice, Royal True, they produce Sprite, they produce Mellow Yellow, Surge, Vault, Fresca, Lift, Lilt Fanta, Seagram's Ginger Ale, Barks Root Beer, Barks Red Cream Soda, Minute Maid Orange Juice, Fruitopia Orange Drink, and Simply Orange Orange Juice. They produce Nest Tea, Tea, which is a joint venture by Nestle, Gold Peak Tea, Fuse, and Peace Tea. They produce Powerade Sport Drink, Aquarius Sport Drink, and Vitamin Water Sport Drink. They also produce Coca-Cola Energy Drink products like Coca-Cola Black, Full Throttle, NOS, Relentless, Burn, Monster Energy, Dasani Water, Kinley, Smart Water, 80s, and AHA. There is a third, a third, even much smaller corporation, that of the Dr. Pepper Keurig Mujahideen in the steeps of corporate Afghanistan, Dr. Pepper, which is mostly bottled in Texas, by the way. So this is pretty awesome. I like that. Dr. Pepper, Texas' uh, favorite soda. So we'll read that. Dr. Pepper, swinging in the, uh, as the Dr. Pepper Mujahideen, produces RC Cola, Diet Right, Diet RC, RC Zero Sugar, RC 100, Cherry RC, Dr. Pepper, Crush, Sunkissed, Orange Soda, 7-Up, Sundrop, Squirt, Canada Dry, A&W Root Beer, um, A&W Cream Soda, Stewart's Cream Soda, Snapple, Mott's Nantucket Nectars, Snapple Iced Tea, All Sport Sport Drink, Venom Energy Drink, Zions and Adrenaline Energy Drinks, Deja Blue Bottled Water, and Limitless Sparking Water. They remain unconquerable, although the victory is <laughs> their logistics is very limited for their victories. Just like the Mujahideen, just like the brave fighters and the Taliban. <laughs> so how's this shake down? Well, let's read our timeline first. Let's get the timeline presented. All the rotten things that have gone down this war. This real-life corporate war. Famous Coke drinkers, which have been weaponized for their propaganda over the year, include silent film actor Fatty Arbuckle, William G. Bonin, Jimmy Carter, U.S. President, Santa Claus, Bill Clinton, U.S. President, Dwight D. Eisenhower, U.S. President, 
John F. Kennedy, U.S. President. George Michael, famous homosexual British singer. And Bill Cosby, <laughs> famous African-American comedian and sexual predator. Famous Pepsi drinkers throughout history have included Marilyn Chambers, which is a legendary porn star. Joan Crawford, legendary actress. Bob Dole, obscure um, presidential candidate in 1996. Robert Alton Harris, Michael Jackson, Ludacris, Madonna, Joseph McCarthy, Richard M. Nixon, U.S. President, Paula Poundstone, comedian and child molester, basically, uh, Elvis Presley, The Spice Girls, Mike Tyson, Britney Spears, Ray Charles, Beyonce Knowles, and the Kardashians. In 1929, Coca-Cola ended its weapons of mass addiction, namely the drug cocaine. It never sheds the chemical agent 7X and merchandise number 5, however, continuing to use them in their recipe to the present day. In 1972, Pepsi infiltrates the Soviet Union and is the first American product sold behind the Iron Curtain. This was directly sponsored and overseen by Richard Nixon. In 1975, the Pepsi Challenge commences in Dallas, Texas. There is no there's no word on how much the Soviet Union influenced this operation. In 1977, Pepsi annexes Pizza Hut. In 1978, Pepsi annexes Taco Bell. In 1984, Michael Jackson is wounded by a pyrotechnic device during a Pepsi propaganda filming. This would lead to plastic surgeries and ultimately end the age of black Michael Jackson with Negroid features and begin the age of white Michael Jackson with white woman features. <laughs> Twenty third of April, nineteen eighty five, Coca Cola withdraws the original formulation and replaces it with New Coke. On the eleventh of July, nineteen eighty five, a strategic retreat is called, and Coca Cola announces it plans to bring back Coke Classic. Nineteen eighty six, Pepsi annexes Kentucky Fried Chicken. The twelfth of August, nineteen eighty eight, establishing a new low in the field of propaganda, Mac and Me is released in theaters. Mac and Me is a horrible, low-budget ripoff of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, completely financed and produced by the McDonald's Corporation and Coca-Cola Company. That's right. This was an attempt at creating a blockbuster film that was purely derivative, in this case of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, that was openly <laughs> created by McDonald's and Coca-Cola to include as much advertising 
of McDonald's and Coca-Cola in the film as possible. In 1996, in an arms deal gone awry, as a gag, Pepsi offers a 23 million Harrier jump jet for 7 million Pepsi points. When a pool of investors coughs up 15 points and a check for $708.50, an apprehensive Pepsi comp, Inc., PepsiCo stonewalls in court. The terms of promotion permitted customers to purchase points at a rate of 10 cents each through mailing in money. The matter soon winds up in court, but decided on PepsiCo's favor. On the 15th of September 1997, Coca-Cola's website taken down after cyber attack, making it one of the first corporate cyber attacks. At 19th June 2000, Coca-Cola infiltrates North Korea, being the first American-produced Coca-Cola uh, canned soda drink to ever be drinking or drank in the communist country. On February 2002, Quibla Cola launched in England. In May 2002, in a surprise preemptive strike against the upcoming vanilla Coke, Pepsi Blue is unleashed on an unsuspecting world. In May 2002, Operation Barbarossa, Coca-Cola's disastrous vanilla Coke campaign begins. In a moment of pure post-9-11 conservative lunacy, on the highly rated television show, The O'Reilly Factor, Bill O'Reilly declares a boycott against Pepsi-Cola based on the moral or the moralist choice of rejecting their new celebrity sponsor. He tells literally tens of millions of Americans, quote, I'm calling for all responsible Americans to fight back and punish Pepsi for using a man who degrades women, who encourages substance abuse, and does all the things that hurt particularly the poor in our society. I'm calling for all Americans to say, hey, Pepsi, I'm not drinking your stuff. You want to hang around with ludicrous? You do that. I'm not hanging around with you. On his television show later, the O'Reilly Factor would declare, or Bill O'Reilly would declare victory in his boycott against Pepsi-Cola. When Pepsi-Cola capitulated to the fans' demands and fired Ludacris as the sponsor. Pepsi-Cola has also, in history, fired Madonna as one of its celebrity sponsors after an uprising by morally conservative Catholics, this occurring in the 90s. On November 2002, Mecca Cola was launched in France. 
According to the website, the drink exemplifies a rejection of American politics, imperialism, and hegemony, and a protest against the Zionist crime financed and supported by America. In an interview, CEO Taufik Malthouli explains, We are against American policy. We made it clear from the beginning, and we don't care what they think. I mean the American administration, we are against them. We don't agree with the foreign policy of the United States. We don't agree with the American imperialist. We say it very, very clearly in an active way. And anyone who buys a Mecca-Cola bottle is making an act of protest against the American politics and also against the crimes of Zionism. On the 4th of February 2003, when questioned by it, Bill O'Reilly on the O'Reilly factor publicly claims to have ever uh, publicly claims to never have ever demanded a boycott against Pepsi Cola, as Pepsi Cola is a sponsor of Fox News. He quote says, "I simply said I wasn't going to drink Pepsi anymore personally. No boycott was ever mentioned by me." A celebrity never lives down the filmed hypocrisy and lies. One of the many contributing factors that would go on to later end his career, or relevancy. On the 19th of November in 2003, the body of Betty Sai, a commercial finance director of the Coca-Cola Export Corp, a very high-ranking CEO of it, actually, is discovered wrapped in black plastic trash bags in Paranaque City, the Philippines. Her corpse showed signs of torture, but was never solved. By the local authorities. In November 2003, seeking to establish a presence in post-war Iraq, unnamed Coca-Cola executives hold meetings in Baghdad with U.S. military officials seeking exclusive contract rights to military bases in occupied zones. As well as, as rumored, the control of local soft drink bottlers. Now that all shakes down, what that all adds up to is that now in 2023, we see the tail of the tape. Coca-Cola is preferred by 51% of the consuming public, while Pepsi is exclusively preferred only by 23%. Diet Coke taking up 20% of the market as well, with Diet Pepsi being only 6%.
Although for a short time during the late 20th century, the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, Pepsi was beating Coke in sales. Currently, Coca-Cola is more popular than Pepsi. Despite the initial results of the Pepsi challenge way back in 1970s, which were obviously proven to be propaganda and it's just a psyop, 71% of Coke drinkers, I mean, soda drinkers, say that Coke is a clear winner in the taste bud category. Although their tastes are subjective to show you how well the advertising works. With a full 50% of that 71% saying Coke is sweeter and provides more caffeine. Ironically, both of these points are wrong. As scientifically testable, Pepsi has more sugar, artificial sweetener in it, and more caffeine per can. And that exactly is the power of perception when it comes down to corporate warfare. It is a battle for the mind. And although PepsiCo has spent millions of dollars in celebrity ad campaigns which have reached the production levels of epic events in themselves, such as the Michael Jackson, the Madonna, the uh, Ludacris, or the uh, Kylie Jenner, and the, the many dozens of celebrities in between that have advertised and endorsed them in these elaborate commercials, typically Super Bowl halftime shows now, the majority of the American public has more fond memories and preferences for Coca-Cola advertisements. As such, from the very traditional Christmas Santa Claus and polar bears, which are wholesome, to the um, you know one-off ad campaigns, slogans, and songs that were used. Out of 76 people, or out of 76%, sorry, of the people who reported the remembering Coca-Cola and Pepsi ad, 71% said that Coca-Cola had memorable and more important advertising campaigns. Such as the, we want to share the Coke, uh, we want to share the world with you, uh, or we want to share the world a Coke, um, Share the world a smile, you know, the, the hands around America type shit, or the uh, have a Coke, have a smile, um, you know, things like that. That being said, Coca-Cola is winning the Cola Wars currently, although there is no end in sight. This rivalry has been going on for over a hundred years. A full century. 
and as a, is as intense as personal, as intricately entwined, convoluted, elaborate, epic, conspiratorial, far-stretching, dramatic and chaotic as any war between any nations, between any rival kingdoms, between the Soviet Union and the USA, between Britain and France, between Spain and Portugal, any of that shit. The new challenges of the 21st century will no doubt boost flagging domestic cola sales, finding new revenue streams and new theaters of operation for their advertisement wars, including online, digital, VR, etc. As well as the ever-evolving trends and tastes in the youth market, creating new products for them to explore and produce, as well as control. Both firms will also begin to modify their bottling, pricing, and brand strategies into the future to help fit certain expectations, especially with the climate and the ecosystem, such as pollution, etc. There are already laws being implemented in Africa to reduce plastic production. These international markets have far more influence and control in the future than the domestic U.S. markets or European markets ever did, which they already control. But these companies will adapt as these are the new front lines to these emerging third world nations, BRICS nations, ever-growing sense of independence and self-responsible control. For over a century, Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola have vied for the throat share of the world's beverage market. The most intense battles of the cola wars are fought over the $60 billion industry in the United States, where the average American consumes 53 gallons of carbonated soft drinks per year, and they wish to make it more for the third worlder. In a carefully waged competitive struggle from 1975 to 1985, both Coke and Pepsi had achieved average annual growth of around 10% of both the U.S. and worldwide canned soda drink consumption, in which this consistently rose and will continue to rise into the 21st century, regardless of the negative implications of the world or human health that it has. They psychologically control not only our tastes, but our desires and our sense of identity with their products and with this very Coca-Cola war. So now I'll be introducing the third-party audio, first Coca-Cola, then Pepsi, and you guys can check it out for yourself. The details behind the controversies, the dark sides of both companies. These are excellent documentaries. Thank you all for your patience. Thank you all for your attention. God bless you and your families. Coca-Cola spend endless billions on advertising every year, but will never once try to sell you on their products. They sell an idea, happiness, harmony, togetherness. But some would say it's a distraction from the disturbing truth. There are a lot of serious accusations against the company that they've caused disease, droughts, exploitation, and much, much worse. 
So buckle up. We're going on a journey through Coke's incredible history, spanning three different centuries. We'll be examining how Coca-Cola really became one of the most recognized brands ever, and at what cost. Because one thing is for sure, you don't build an empire selling sugar water by telling people the truth. there was a bit of a backlash against doctors and people started using home remedies instead and a bunch of deceitful entrepreneurs pounced on this opportunity and started creating potions and elixirs that they claimed had a wide variety of medical benefits the truth was that they were mostly dangerous ineffective concoctions of various different chemicals but with no regulation they could claim whatever health benefits they wanted so business was booming one popular patent medicine was called Vin Mariani, which contained a mix of wine and cocaine that supposedly cured almost any ailment or sickness whatsoever, as long as you drank three glasses every day. And one person who absolutely loved this drink was a man named John Pemberton, a war veteran who had been severely injured in battle. The doctors had actually thought he was going to die and dosed him up on morphine to try and mask the pain for his final few hours. But John somehow survived. However, he did develop a serious morphine addiction, which is why when he discovered Vin Mariani, he became hooked on the drink. He thought it was helping him overcome his morphine addiction. And of course, after drinking it, he really did feel better. But that's not because it was medicinal, it's because it contained wine and cocaine. But since Pemberton loved the drink, and he was a chemist himself, he decided to create his own version. And in 1884, he launched French Wine Coca, which was basically a ripoff of Vin Mariani with a couple more ingredients added. And yet, this knockoff drink would soon become Coca-Cola. Now, to be fair to Pemberton, he wasn't some snake oil salesman trying to deliberately rip people off. He really believed in his products. However, Pemberton's timing was terrible. Just a year later, prohibition hits, with many states banning alcohol. Pemberton had to take the wine out of his drink and replace it with carbonated water. But this left the drink tasting very bitter, so he added a huge amount of sugar to counteract that. Now that the wine was removed, he could continue selling French wine coca. But they needed a new name. Luckily, Pemberton's bookkeeper, Frank Robinson, came up with a catchy-sounding suggestion, Coca-Cola. Now, the company would later claim that the name doesn't mean anything, and it's just a nice-sounding alliteration. Of course, this isn't true. The name was a reference to the drink's two main ingredients. The cola nut, which contained caffeine, and the coca leaf, which contained cocaine. To this day, Coca-Cola deny their formula has ever contained cocaine, despite the fact it's extremely well documented it contained the coca leaf, which contains cocaine. Eventually, by 1929, they would find a way to remove all the active cocaine from the coca leaves, once it became clear that cocaine wasn't quite the magical medicine they'd first thought. But back in the 1880s, nobody was worried about the cocaine in the drink. So now that the wine had been removed, Coca-Cola could continue being sold. The only problem is not many people were buying it. Pemberton was still trying to sell people on the medicinal aspect of the drink. Early ads for Coca-Cola described it as a harmless, wonderful brain tonic that relieves headaches and upset stomachs. 
But sales were slow, because there were countless other patent medicines offering the same thing. So Coke didn't really stand out. Meanwhile, Pemberton was becoming increasingly ill. His pain was worsening, his addiction growing stronger, and by 1888, John Pemberton was dead. The tragedy is, he had absolutely no idea that his drink would soon become one of the most well-known drinks on the entire planet. Right before Pemberton died, he sold the company for $2,300 to an ambitious workaholic named Asa Candler. Candler then began buying out any outstanding shares owned by other people, so he could have the company fully under his control. Later investigations would find that Candler may not have really bought all those shares, as some of the documents contained forged signatures. We may never know exactly what happened, because Candler then had the early records of the company burned, most likely to cover his tracks. But all that was irrelevant, because by the 1890s, Asa Candler was fully in charge of Coca-Cola. But remember, the drink wasn't actually that popular at first. So Candler started filling the town with Coke-branded banners, billboards, and placards. They even painted the logo on barns, and basically plastered the Coca-Cola logo on anything they could, so people started seeing the logo everywhere they went. But one of Coke's first strokes of marketing genius was to contact every pharmacy in the area, get a list of their top customers, and send them a free coupon for Coca-Cola. The logic was that by giving people a free trial, they'd become customers for life, especially since the drink contained several addictive chemicals. However, it soon became clear that advertising Coca-Cola as a medicine was the wrong strategy. Rather than just market to people who were ill, they could market it to everyone by simply positioning it as a tasty, relaxing drink that anyone could enjoy. This had the added benefit of disassociating Coca-Cola from the patent medicine industry, which would soon face a lot of scrutiny once people realized that most of their claims were complete lies. Coca-Cola's mass marketing strategy was a huge hit. As the sales started to grow rapidly, Candler reinvested more and more money into advertising, and even started paying movie stars and athletes to endorse the drink. Is that Coca-Cola? Yes, sir. So much of Coke's success has been about creating such a positive, wholesome image in people's minds of what the drink represents. And what better way to do that than pay popular celebrities to recommend the drink? They even started heavily featuring Santa Claus in their ads at Christmas, always holding a Coke, to make the connection in young kids' minds between Coca-Cola and the joy of Christmas. Of course, none of this marketing may sound particularly special, but at the time, it was. Coca-Cola pioneered many marketing strategies that soon became commonplace. For example, sex sells may be an advertising cliche these days, but very few mainstream companies exploited this as much as Coke did with their use of Coca-Cola girls, attractive women who always had a Coke in hand. Coke even created a statistical department to analyze car traffic and movement in supermarkets, so they could determine the most effective places to put their ads. And as new technology was introduced, from radios to TV, Coke was always ready to throw money into advertising on these new mediums, to ensure everyone everywhere knew about its products. Initially though, Coke was mostly sold in soda fountains. This allowed Coke to save huge amounts of money because they simply had to distribute the syrup, and then it would be mixed with carbonated water by whoever was selling it. So the shipping and distribution costs for Coke were much lower. But then one day, two lawyers named Benjamin and Joseph came to Asa Candler with an idea. Let's bottle it. 
Candler thought this was a really dumb idea. Bottling was very expensive and complicated. But Benjamin and Joseph said they would take on all the cost and risk themselves. So Candler agreed and signed a contract granting them full bottling rights for Coca-Cola for just a nominal fee of $1. Candler figured he had nothing to lose. In the unlikely scenario that this bottling idea actually went well, it simply meant he would sell lots more of the Coke syrup. Of course, as we now know, bottled Coke was an unimaginably huge success. Customers loved bottled Coke. So at first, this was great for Candler. It meant the bottlers were buying loads and loads of Coke syrup from him, and this was a great revenue stream for the business. But there was one very major problem. Because Candler hadn't believed bottling Coke would work, he put almost no thought into the contract he signed. So there was no time frame set on the deal, and no mention about changing the price if the cost to produce the Coke syrup increased. What this meant is that Asa Candler had given the bottlers a never-ending contract to supply them with Coke syrup at the same low price, no matter how much the cost of the raw ingredients went up. This would lead to multiple lawsuits between Coke and its bottlers. Over the next few decades, the Coca-Cola company would end up paying countless millions of dollars to buy back some of the rights that Candler had sold away for just one dollar. But back in the early 1900s, this wasn't a worry for Candler, because sales of Coca-Cola were higher than ever and growing every year. Of course, this wasn't really because of the product. There were countless very similar drinks out there. And remember, Coca-Cola was a knockoff of another drink anyway. The reason for the rapid growth was marketing. Every single year, Coca-Cola spent more and more money on advertising, and every single year, sales of Coca-Cola grew. However, arguably Coca-Cola's biggest successes of all would come from a pretty surprising source. Once the Second World War broke out, it was announced sugar would be rationed. However, Coca-Cola made the absurd claim that they should be exempt from the sugar rationing because Coke was an essential wartime product. And even more absurdly, the government agreed. This was largely because Coca-Cola spent huge amounts of money on lobbying the government. Coke funded countless studies to try and convince the government of Coke's benefits, and that they claimed that Coke would keep up morale and provide an energy boost for soldiers. Eventually, the US government agreed to appoint a Coca-Cola executive onto the rationing board, who then gave Coca-Cola an exemption from sugar rationing, whilst every other company had to reduce the quantities of sugar they used during the war. And Coca-Cola didn't stop there. Coke's president publicly promised, we will see that every man in uniform gets a bottle of Coca-Cola for five cents, wherever he is and whatever it costs our company. Now, by selling at this low price, Coca-Cola would lose money on each drink sold. And yet, this decision was absolutely genius. Firstly, in the eyes of the public, and especially soldiers, it created a strong connection between Coke and the war effort, and helped Coke gain huge public support and goodwill. In the minds of millions of Americans, Coke and patriotism became connected. Coke seized upon this opportunity to run new wartime ads showing soldiers holding Coke bottles. But not just that. Behind the scenes, Coke had made a deal with the government about getting money to help them set up Coca-Cola bottling plants overseas. They claimed it would spread American influence and boost soldier morale. But what it really meant is the taxpayer was helping to fund Coke's international expansion. During the war, 64 Coke bottling plants were set up around the world on different continents, mostly funded by the government. 
In fact, the technicians who installed Coca-Cola plants during the war were deemed just as vital as the people who were fixing tanks and planes. And because Coke was now accessible to soldiers wherever they were in the world, they started sharing the drink with the locals, helping Coke's expansion into even more new countries. As soldiers were so thankful for Coke sending them a taste of home during the hell of war, that they became the drink's biggest advocates. The US military basically became a Coca-Cola sales force, introducing new people to Coke wherever they went. So, whilst the war had a devastating impact on most companies and people, Coca-Cola were expanding faster than ever all over the globe. As of today, there's only two countries in the world that don't sell Coke, Cuba and North Korea. And the deals Coke made during the war were largely responsible for Coke's rapid global expansion across the planet. Now, there's just one tiny little problem with this heartwarming idea of Coca-Cola as a patriotic company looking out for American soldiers. Which is that during the war, the Coca-Cola company was supplying Nazi Germany with Coke as well. Yep, whilst in the US, Coke were preaching about supporting the troops, in Germany, they were busy trying to disassociate themselves from anything American, and often showed the Coke logo alongside swastikas. Coke was even distributed at Hitler youth rallies and advertised on Nazi educational pamphlets. Coca-Cola was literally playing both sides. After all, Germany was a huge market for them. However, as the war progressed, restrictions were introduced that cut off the supply for many goods to Germany. For most multinational corporations, this meant they couldn't sell their products to Germans anymore. But the head of Coke's biggest bottling operation in Germany, a man named Max Keif, had an idea to counteract these restrictions. He got local chemists to create a new drink that was vaguely similar to Coke, but rather than being made with the Coke syrup, which could no longer be imported, it was instead made from the leftover scraps from other food produce, like apple fiber. This new drink would later be named Fanta. And since so many other drinks had been banned because of the war, Fanta became a huge hit in Nazi Germany. Some sources even suggest that Keith used forced labor from concentration camps to help produce it. What we know for sure is that at the end of the war, the profits of this new Fanta drink all went back to the Coca-Cola headquarters, and Max was given a promotion in the Coca-Cola company. And by 1955, Coke was selling Fanta in many different countries around the world. Of course, like so much of their history, Coke tried to distance themselves from what really happened. However, Coca-Cola would never have been able to expand across the world so rapidly if they didn't have a team of polygots who could speak multiple languages. Which brings us to our video sponsor, Lingoda, Europe's biggest online language school, offering courses in English, French, German and Spanish. Whether you're looking to travel the world and be able to speak to the locals, or... Coke will try to tell you that their biggest secret is the drink secret formula, which is hidden in a high security vault for dramatic effect. But the formula isn't that secret. It's on Wikipedia. Of course, Coca-Cola's success has very little to do with the formula. You could create a clone product, but you're never going to be able to compete with them. Let's look at why. One day a teacher at a new school suggested to the headmaster they had some healthier choices to the school vending machines, like some fruit juices. She was horrified when she was told it wouldn't be possible, because the school had an exclusive contract with Coca-Cola. Coke paid the school $3,000 a year, or around $1 per student, in order to dictate which products the school sold. It turns out, contracts like this had been struck with countless different schools as part of Coke's cradle-to-grave strategy. Basically, the best way to make someone a Coke customer for life is to ensure they drink it from the earliest age possible. 
One Coke marketing chief pointed out that it's far easier to get them at a young, vulnerable age to become a Coke customer for life than try to convert them later on when they're older. In some of the contracts, the school could even earn additional money by selling more Coca-Cola to its kids. And since many schools were underfunded and in desperate need of money, they would shill Coke's products to their children. This is just one of many ways Coke have managed to circumvent the rules about advertising to children. Another way is that Coke has produced countless collector's items, including Barbie dolls, playing cars, board games, delivery trucks, and other toys that they claim are for adults. Then, of course, there's all the Christmas ads, deliberately tying Santa and Coca-Cola together in the minds of impressionable children. In 1982, Coke even bought Columbia Pictures so they could easily integrate product placement into their films. Although, they later sold the film studio and decided just to pay other companies for Coke product placement instead. But product placement in family films is a clever loophole that allows them to circumvent rules about targeting children. And it works. Research has shown that even for babies, Coke is one of the most recognized brands in the world. But back in the 80s, a problem was emerging for Coke. More and more data was piling up about the negative health effects Coke was having. There'd always been concerns about Coke rotting your teeth, but new data was showing the serious effects Coke was having on obesity, diabetes, and a string of other health issues. For example, one study of children found that even just one extra sugary soft drink a day gave them a 60% greater chance of becoming overweight. Another showed that if babies are exposed to a high intake of sugar, they will be conditioned to depend on sugar for the rest of their lives. For a brand that is built upon its image of wholesomeness, it was a major setback being so directly connected to such a wide variety of health problems. Especially since Coke was actively pursuing a strategy of offering bigger and bigger portion sizes of its drink. It also didn't help that the drink contained caffeine. Coca-Cola claimed that this was purely for taste purposes. But in blind taste tests, people couldn't tell the difference with a non-caffeinated version. This left some people wondering why Coke continued to add this addictive caffeine to a drink that's being sold so much to kids. However, the soda industry had come to a similar realization that the tobacco industry had come to. It's easier to cast doubt on the science than debate on policies. Because you can always just claim that more research is needed. So, behind the scenes, Coke was pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars into studies to cast doubt on the connection between soft drinks and obesity and diabetes. Unsurprisingly, the studies paid for by Coke generally claimed that Coke wasn't causing many health problems. However, they conveniently didn't mention who'd funded those studies. Coke also spent endless millions of dollars on lobbying state officials against sugar taxes and stronger dietary guidelines. They reportedly made deals behind closed doors about donating to certain politicians' campaigns in favor of special treatment for Coke. They also continued to throw billions of dollars into sponsoring athletes and major sporting events to try and create the illusion of a connection between great athletic performance and Coca-Cola. However, Coke could sense they could only store for so long before the science became too undeniable to dispute. So they began expanding into other drinks. For example, a bottled water brand called Dazani. However, this immediately backfired when it launched in the UK, as it was quickly discovered that this expensive bottled water had essentially just come out of a local tap. Now, Coke tried to defend itself by explaining they run the water through some kind of purification process. But this just made things worse, because it turns out they'd accidentally added a bad batch of minerals that contaminated the water. As a result, over half a million bottles in circulation had to be withdrawn from shops over safety fears. In other words, Coke's attempt to produce a healthy drink had ended up with them being accused of selling expensive, contaminated tap water. 
However, this wasn't the worst of Coke's contamination problems. In 1999, in Belgium, children started becoming ill after drinking Coca-Cola, eventually leading to the recall of all Coke products. France also reported more than 100 people sick from bad Coke and temporarily banned their products as well. The company was very slow to respond to any of these issues and was accused of not taking the problem seriously enough. Then in India, Coke was accused of contaminating the groundwater with wastewater. Coke actually admitted they had a wastewater issue, but insisted they'd fix the problem. However, later independent tests still found traces of toxic sludge produced at Coca-Cola's Indian plants, which reportedly has made the land barren, killed local animals that drank it, and destroyed the livelihoods of local farmers. The Center for Science and Environment in New Delhi also announced it found pesticide in both Coke and Pepsi that if consumed over a long enough period could cause cancer, birth defects and severe disruption to the immune system. One woman from a local village told journalists, before this company came, our lives were comfortable and beautiful. After the company came, within six months, the taste of the water changed. Another said, when we bathe, our heads swim. It pains and we scratch all over. And Coke's environmental record continued to get worse. You see, the company also runs bottling plants in several drought-plagued areas, and officials have blamed Coke for a dramatic decline in available water. This problem was particularly bad in parts of Mexico, because between 2000 and 2006, Mexico's president was a man who'd formerly been the head of Coca-Cola Mexico. The president started giving his former company favorable treatment after getting elected. And during his presidency, he gave Coca-Cola 27 water concessions, which many claim allowed Coke to pollute water and even steal water owned by indigenous people. One local resident claimed, there used to be a lot of water here. Now there is a scarcity. They are not paying anything and they are just taking our water away. During this presidency, Coke's sales increased 50% and became the most popular drink in the country. Critics claim this is yet another example of Coke benefiting from shady deals with politicians. Of course, Coca-Cola has always had to acquire vast quantities of natural resources in order to succeed. In fact, it's the largest sugar buyer in the world. However, as the 90s arrived, Coke began to face yet more negative publicity. For example, in Mexico City, one shopkeeper said she was told her deliveries of Coke would stop unless she removed an alternative cola from her store. Meanwhile in Brazil, Coke trolled a new type of vending machine that would increase the price of Coke depending on how hot it was outside. Also, to further boost sales figures and trick investors, Coke engaged in channel stuffing, forcing distributors to buy more syrup than they needed at the end of quarters to make Coke's profits look better than they really were. However, the backlash against Coke reached its peak when in 2003, a campaign was launched called Stop Killer Coke that claimed the Coca-Cola company was responsible for the murder of union members who worked in Coke bottling plants in Colombia. Now, Coke deny this and the exact truth remains unclear. But what we do know is that since 1989, countless unionized workers employed at the Coca-Cola bottling plants in Colombia have been killed and many more have received death threats. In fact, in 2001, the International Labor Rights Fund filed a lawsuit against Coca-Cola bottlers claiming they'd openly engaged death squads to intimidate, torture, kidnap and even murder union officials in Latin America. A few years later, another lawsuit was brought about by Guatemalan workers alleging that they and their families at the Cocoa bottling plant had been victims of violence after the workers decided to join unions. They wanted to join a union because some workers were earning just $15 per day for 15-hour shifts. However, again, there were allegations of kidnap, torture and murder of union leaders and their family members. Now, Coca-Cola argued that the Guatemalan plant is independently owned and Coke had absolutely no knowledge of these incidents. 
and Coke genuinely may be telling the truth there. We don't know if they actually colluded or knew about the violence, or if they just indirectly benefited. But either way, the unions have been decimated by the attacks and threats. And in parts of Latin America, Coke has been referred to as the sparkle of death. What we do know for sure is that the deeper you look into Coke's past, the more you chip away at their wholesome image they tried to present. For example, Asa Candler, the entrepreneur who incorporated the Coca-Cola company and played a pivotal role in popularizing the drink, once said, the most beautiful sight that we see is the child at labor. The younger the boy began work, the more beautiful. However, before we all get the pitchforks out, I think it's important to acknowledge that if you look at any giant company with such a long history, you're probably gonna find some ethical disasters in their past. That's not an excuse, but a reminder that business is brutal. Many of the same criticisms of Coke also apply to many of their competitors. And of course, Coke has done plenty of good for the world too. We can't come to conclusions from just one side of the story. It's never black and white. What's ironic though, is that some of the worst press Coca-Cola has ever received was nothing to do with any of these moral or legal issues. Nope, Coke's biggest backlash of all came from changing the taste of their drink. Coca-Cola Company has been offered the chance to buy Pepsi's business multiple times, including for only $50,000 in 1933. But Coke turned them down. Instead, Coke tried to sue Pepsi for using the word cola in their ads, claiming that they were trying to rip off Coca-Cola's products. This backfired when Pepsi countersued that Coke was using anti-competitive tactics to build a monopoly. The courts agreed and ruled that cola was a generic term anyone could use. However, since Coke missed their chance to buy Pepsi, they ended up getting locked in an ongoing marketing battle with them. At one point, Coke and Pepsi both started cutting their prices and offering discounts to try and compete with each other. But they soon realized this was hurting both of them. Whether they made a secret deal behind closed doors or not is unknown, but soon they both reverted back to their normal pricing and tried to compete on advertising instead. But eventually, Pepsi had the simple but genius idea to actually compete on taste. In 1975, Pepsi launched the Pepsi Challenge, where they gave people two white cups, one containing Pepsi and one containing Coca-Cola. People didn't know which was which and were encouraged to taste both to see which they preferred. The test results showed that Pepsi was preferred by slightly more people. And so Pepsi started using this stat in all of their advertising. And all across America, more people pick Pepsi, Pepsi. time after time after time. Pepsi Coke completely denied this was true. But when they conducted their own tests, they found that Pepsi did indeed score slightly higher in a blind taste test. Meanwhile, Coca-Cola was slowly but steadily losing market share. They tried everything, huge marketing campaigns and price promotions, but every year, Coke's market share slightly declined and Pepsi's slightly increased. It started to seem that perhaps the Pepsi challenge was right. The problem was that more people simply preferred the taste of Pepsi. And thus, Coca-Cola began an incredibly secret mission. They were gonna change Coke's formula. After rigorous testing and trials, they discovered a new cola formula that consistently performed better than both original Coke and Pepsi. Over and over, they repeated the blind taste test and the data was clear. The new formula was more popular. And so, just short of Coca-Cola's 100-year anniversary, they did the unthinkable. They changed the Coca-Cola formula and replaced it with new Coke. Coca-Cola is about to announce what it calls the most significant development in its history. Pepsi-Cola says Coke is merely trying to match Pepsi's success. These two products, Pepsi and Coke, have been going at it eyeball to eyeball. And in my view, the other guy just blinked. 
and immediately, the chaos began. Every single day, thousands of phone calls and letters arrived at Coke's offices. They were a mixture of distraught people begging for the old version of Coke back, and people who were downright furious Coke had had the nerve to take away the original formula. Coke expected the uproar would soon die down, especially once people actually tried the new formula. But the outrage simply intensified. The media was equally full of outrage reports, and at the Coke phone lines it were constantly jammed with complaints for months. When new Coke advertisements were shown on giant screens in stadiums, people loudly booed. It became popular to hate new Coke. Of course, many of the people complaining hadn't even tried the new formula. As one Coke employee put it, we could have introduced the elixir of the gods and it wouldn't have made any difference. It was soon very clear that taste hadn't been the issue. It didn't matter if new Coke technically tasted better in blind taste tests. Coke's success had never been about taste in the first place. Thanks to its incredible marketing, the world viewed Coca-Cola as an old friend, a piece of everyday life. For around a hundred years, Coke had been present, never changing, no matter what was going on in the world. It was an icon, and changing something that meant so much to people was considered a betrayal. One angry letter commented that changing Coke is like making the grass purple. Another claimed, you've taken away my childhood. Even months later, the protests were not dying down, and it soon became clear the company had to revert back to the old formula. They had made a gigantic mistake. There were very few instances in history of such strong backlash against the company's decision. And yet, despite that, the new Coke disaster ended up being one of Coke's greatest marketing triumphs. You see, when Coke caved in and brought back the original formula under the name Classic Coke, suddenly all of the anger turned to euphoria and praise. Suddenly all the letters and phone calls arriving at the company were filled with adoring fans thanking the company and commenting how much it meant to them. One Coke marketer said, you would have thought we'd invented a cure for cancer. Immediately after reintroducing the old flavor, Coke sales dramatically increased. Business Week named the whole thing the marketing blunder of the decade, but some skeptical analysts felt the company had staged the entire thing for publicity and to remind customers how much Coke means to them. If the whole stunt really was planned, it would be one of the greatest marketing strategies imaginable. But that was not the case at all. New Coke was a catastrophic misjudgment by Coke. They really had thought people would prefer New Coke. In fact, even after they reintroduced the classic version, they kept New Coke available in shops as well, because they thought once people actually had more time to try the new flavor, eventually people would convert to the new formula. I'm Don Keogh, president of the Coca-Cola Company. When we brought you the new taste of Coke, we knew that millions would prefer it, and millions do. And we knew that it would beat the taste of our major competitor, and it does. What we didn't know was how many thousands of you would phone and write asking us to bring back the classic taste of original Coca-Cola. Well, we read and we listened, and you know the rest. They're both yours, the new taste of Coke and Coca-Cola Classic. Your right of choice is back. But they were wrong again. Sales of New Coke never improved, and eventually it was removed from circulation completely. However, despite being so completely wrong, the end result was that New Coke had unintentionally made people realize how much they loved original Coke. The whole thing helped people feel more attached and loyal to Coke than ever before, which is why New Coke was one of the most successful mistakes ever. But here is the craziest part of all this. It was proven time and time again that in a test where people didn't know which drink was which, people rate New Coke the best, Pepsi second and original Coke third. And yet, customers had overwhelmingly decided they wanted original Coke. They wanted the drink they liked the taste of the least. And that is the biggest compliment Coca-Cola's marketing could ever hope to get. The image of Coke they had created in people's minds is so powerful that it overrides taste, logic, or data. 
In many ways, Coke was still operating off the same principle that the patent medicine industry had used all those years ago. It's not about what your product really is. It's about what your customer thinks your product is. It's about what it represents. And that's the reason Coke continued to spend billions and billions on advertising every year, even though around 94% of the world's entire population recognized the Coke logo already. And over 2 billion servings of Coca-Cola is drunk every day. Coke is built on an image that needs to be constantly reinforced. Because sure, you can hear about Coke's devastating impact on the health of children, their lobbying of governments, and countless controversies they've tried to sweep under the carpet. But does it really make any difference? Because ultimately, Coke have never tried to sell you on their sugar water. They sell you on the good times, friends, family, and happy memories. Coke positions itself as an old friend. And hey, what's a little controversy between friends? I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. truth Pepsi don't want you to know. Pepsi started off as a ripoff of Coca-Cola, and they even tried to sell their company to Coca-Cola on three separate occasions. But Coke kept turning them down. As a result, Pepsi struggled and literally went bankrupt on two separate occasions. And yet, fast forward to present day, and PepsiCo makes around $80 billion of revenue a year, more than double the Coca-Cola company. You see, Pepsi is no longer just a drinks business. They are a gigantic empire that owns more food and beverage products than you can even imagine. Lay's, Gatorade, Cheetos, Aquafina, Tropicana, Quaker Oats, Mountain Dew, Doritos. The brands PepsiCo owns are endless. In fact, at one point, Pepsi even started buying giant fast food chains like KFC and Pizza Hut. They were even negotiating a deal to buy a huge fleet of Navy warships. So how did all of this happen? How did Pepsi go from bankruptcy to global domination? From humble beginnings to controversial conglomerate with blood on its hands? Welcome to the insane history of Pepsi. The story of Pepsi begins with a man named Caleb D. Bradham, who was born in 1867. Caleb grew up in a very small farming town in North Carolina. His father worked as a local merchant, but his family was very wealthy. And because of this, Caleb was able to receive the best education and went off to become a doctor at the University of North Carolina. However, his father suddenly ran into financial trouble and could no longer afford to make the tuition payments. So Caleb was forced to drop out of school. Despite this, when he returned to his small town, the locals treated him as if he actually was a qualified doctor because there was no other doctor available for miles around. So, Caleb gave out medical advice whilst also working as a local teacher so he could save up money. Within two years, he'd earned enough money to go back to college. But this time, he decided he didn't actually want to be a doctor anymore. Maybe it was because of years of helping the local residents with their medical problems, but Caleb had decided he now wanted to become a pharmacist instead. So, after graduating in 1892, at age 25, Caleb Bradham purchased a building in New Bern, North Carolina to open the Bradham Pharmacy. At the time, drugstores like this were incredibly popular and were a place where locals would actually hang out and socialize. It was common to have a counter for people to sit and chat, whilst having some snacks and a cold drink. That's because most of the pharmacies had a soda fountain, where soda was made by mixing carbonated water with whatever flavor the customers chose. And there were hundreds of flavor syrups to choose from, like orange, grape, rose, and countless more. Caleb was a very social person, so by running a pharmacy of his own, he quickly made 
friends with nearly everyone in the town. Now, that exact same year Caleb started his pharmacy business, 1892, the Coca-Cola Company was founded in Atlanta, Georgia. They had developed a cola syrup recipe that was sold at pharmacy soda counters. And so it wasn't long before Caleb Bradham had been introduced to Coca-Cola's drink. Caleb very quickly saw the huge potential of it. It was immediately a popular choice amongst customers when deciding what to order from the soda fountain. But Caleb thought the only problem was that the original founder of Coca-Cola had mixed addictive chemicals into the recipe. So Caleb had the idea to make his own very similar version of cola syrup, but leave out the ingredients he considered harmful. Because Caleb wanted to make a true health drink that relieves indigestion, but had the same cola flavor that everyone seemed to love. And thus, Caleb's cola syrup was a mix of natural flavors like caramel, rare oils, and fruit juice extracts. Once Caleb settled on the formula, he started to offer it as a new flavor at the soda counter in his pharmacy and encouraged his friends to try it. The locals nicknamed his cola beverage Brad's Drink, in reference to the surname of its creator, Caleb Bradham. And for the next five years, the locals would regularly request Brad's Drink at the pharmacy soda fountain simply because they liked the taste. After years of hearing the locals tell him how good it was, Caleb finally built up the confidence to try to sell his product elsewhere. By this time, Coca-Cola was growing massively successful, and Caleb knew that there was a demand for more cola drinks on the market. So, in 1898, he officially changed the name of his product to Pepsi-Cola. The word Pepsi comes from the Greek word pepsis, which means digestion. Because at this point, Caleb still believed focusing on the health aspect was going to be key. However, what actually was most popular was the taste. And before long, he was selling large kegs of Pepsi syrup to supply other soda fountains across the country. For years, Caleb was creating Pepsi-Cola in the back room of his pharmacy, and in 1903, Caleb officially established the Pepsi-Cola company. He closed down his pharmacy so he could fully focus on Pepsi. In the first year as an actual registered company, they sold over 8,000 gallons of syrup, and Caleb reinvested his earnings into advertising in local newspapers, which helped the brand grow even more. Sales more than doubled to 20,000 gallons of syrup in 1904, and Pepsi was now far too big of an operation to run out of the pharmacy. So Caleb bought a bigger building to use as a factory to produce Pepsi in larger quantities. He also partnered with bottling companies who wanted to be part of the Pepsi franchise, thus allowing Pepsi to be sold by the bottle instead of just as a syrup sold to soda fountains. By 1910, Pepsi-Cola was working with 250 bottling companies across 24 states. And by 1915, Pepsi-Cola's assets were worth more than $1 million. Caleb Braddon bought a big house for his wife and children to live in, and he was so popular in the local area people were encouraging him to run as the governor of North Carolina. By all accounts, Caleb had made it. But that all changed after the start of World War I. During the war, the price of sugar skyrocketed due to strict rations. Before the war, a pound of sugar cost just five cents, but during the ration, it jumped to 22 cents per pound and the price seemed to be increasing every month. So Caleb assumed that the price would continue to rise, and he decided to pour huge amounts of money into stockpiling more sugar. If his theory was right that the price of sugar would keep increasing like this, all the sugar he'd bought would soon be extremely valuable. He'd also be able to produce his drink much cheaper than any competitors who would be paying way higher prices for their sugar. However, Caleb's theory was completely wrong. Just six months later, the sugar price crashed down to three cents per pound, making it even cheaper than before the war started. To make matters worse, most factories in America had to prioritize making products for the war effort. So Pepsi went from having 250 bottling factories to just two. So the amount of product they could sell was drastically cut down. Basically, Caleb had spent more on sugar than what the company was able to earn. They couldn't use it all, and the current market price for that sugar was way below what he paid for it. Things spiraled out of control, and in 1920, 
Pepsi-Cola filed for bankruptcy. Caleb was 53 at this point, and he had to sell off all the remaining company assets, like the Pepsi trademark and drink formula, and thus Caleb returned to his old career as a pharmacist. By 1934, Caleb was dead. And so the original creator of Pepsi never got to see the insane success his company would soon go on to have. After acquiring what was left of the Pepsi company, for eight straight years, the new owners desperately tried to increase the value of the business. But then the stock market crashed in 1929, and suddenly the economic situation was looking very bleak. At this point, Pepsi had just one bottling plant in Richmond, Virginia, and they were failing to make a profit. So Pepsi declared bankruptcy a second time, and they were forced to sell Pepsi to the Loft Candy Company in 1931. So Pepsi had now gone bankrupt twice with two different owners, and had now been passed on to a third different owner. However, for Pepsi's biggest competitor, Coca-Cola, things were looking much brighter. Whilst Pepsi had been struggling so much through World War I and the Great Depression, Coke had managed to secure a wartime contract with the United States government to sell Coke overseas. And so they've been expanding all over the world. Of course, the new owners of Pepsi were desperate to make money back on their investment. And after seeing Coke's success, they thought they'd come up with the perfect solution. Sell Pepsi to Coca-Cola. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, there were three separate attempts to sell Pepsi to Coca-Cola. But they refused every time. In retrospect, imagine how much money Coke could have saved themselves if they bought out their future biggest rivals when they had the chance. But at the time, understandably, no one believed that Pepsi could turn their luck around. So when Coke rejected the chance to buy Pepsi three separate times, eventually the Pepsi owners, the Loft Candy Company, realized they needed to try and find another way to save the business. One of the first great decisions they made was when Pepsi began using recycled beer bottles to save money on production costs. This meant they were able to charge just 5 cents for a 12-ounce bottle of Pepsi. That was twice the amount of soda that was offered in a Coca-Cola bottle for the same price. Remember, the Great Depression was still going on at the time, so people were looking to save money any way they could. So buying Pepsi instead of Coke was an obvious choice for a lot of people, given they were getting double the amount. The next important decision by Pepsi was their heavy investment in advertising campaigns, as this really helped the company take off. There were billboards, skywriting, a comic strip, and even a popular new jingle that played over the radio. This Pepsi-Cola radio jingle was just 15 seconds long in total, so it was cheaper to buy than the typical 60-second advertisement. This way, Pepsi were able to pay more radio stations across America to run these ads over and over again until people had the jingle stuck in their heads. However, now that the Pepsi company was growing in popularity, Coca-Cola obviously wasn't happy about losing business to Pepsi. So in 1938, Coca-Cola took Pepsi-Cola to court for trademark infringement over their use of the word cola. Obviously, Coke had known about Pepsi-Cola's name for years, but they hadn't bothered to sue them until now, because until now, they didn't think Pepsi was any sort of threat. But it was quickly becoming clear Pepsi was cutting into Coke sales. So in court, Coca-Cola argued that Pepsi was infringing on their copyright, while Pepsi countered that Coke was trying to form an illegal monopoly over the entire cola industry. In the end, Pepsi-Cola got to keep its name, although they eventually shortened the name to just Pepsi. But there was trouble on the horizon for Pepsi. In 1939, World War II began. And after what happened with the sugar rationing in World War I, you might think that another war would spell another disaster for Pepsi. But this time around, they came up with a clever plan to stay in business. Pepsi decided to change the colors of their 
their brand to red, white, and blue to show their patriotism. They also set up a campaign called Your Man in Service, where Pepsi installed recording booths all around the United States so that soldiers could record a message to their family for free. This obviously generated a lot of goodwill and patriotism towards Pepsi. Then, during the 1940s, Pepsi also made the very successful decision to market their drink to the African-American community and hired an all-black sales and marketing team to create the ads. This was huge because most of Pepsi's competitors only featured black people in the form of stereotypes. So the African-American community was a huge untapped market that most other brands were ignoring. With all of these successful advertising campaigns, Pepsi was able to make it through World War II stronger than ever. They were just getting started. In 1950, Pepsi hired a man named Alfred Steele as the new CEO. This was slightly controversial, as he was the former vice president of Coca-Cola. And thus, Alfred was an expert on what it took to make a cola company successful, and he quickly made several changes to the Pepsi brand. In particular, he liked to focus on giant advertising campaigns and big sales promotions. He started introducing beautiful and glamorous women to Pepsi advertisements, and Alfred Steele also just so happened to be married to the famous actress Joan Crawford, so he brought her on as a model for Pepsi too. Since she was one of the biggest names in Hollywood, her celebrity endorsement of the product massively boosted sales. Alfred also pushed for a brand new logo and slogan. They completely redesigned a swirl bottle, which made the drink look more stylish. Alfred's extensive ad campaigns and branding changes helped Pepsi grow out of its poor man's cola image that some people associated with Pepsi. He also made changes behind the scenes, like giving teams within Pepsi's company more autonomy, thus empowering them to bring new ideas forward. All of these changes helped increase Pepsi's sales from $1.6 million in 19 to $11.5 million in 1958. Alfred Steele is remembered for being one of the most successful CEOs in all of Pepsi history. Without him, the brand might not be what it is today, but sadly, his career was short-lived because he died of a heart attack in 1959. So it was time for Pepsi to find new leadership, and the job soon fell to a man named Don Kendall, who'd been with Pepsi for his entire career. He'd worked his way up the corporate ladder from a syrup salesman all the way to Pepsi president and then CEO. And one of his first decisions was quite surprising. Don decided to bring Pepsi to the Soviet Union. It was, of course, a massive market, and importantly, a market Coca-Cola had not entered. Now, that was largely because this was during the Cold War, and so there was actually an organization called the House Un-American Activities Committee, which would make sure that US businesses had nothing to do with the Soviet Union. However, that changed in 1959, when US President Dwight Eisenhower wanted to bring American culture to the Soviet Union and show them the benefits of capitalism, and thus they hosted the 1959 American National Exhibition in Moscow. Pepsi's new leader, Don Kendall, saw this exhibition as a big opportunity to introduce Pepsi to the Soviet Union. And he was right. There's even a photo of the former Soviet leader sampling Pepsi for the first time during this exhibition. And after this successful introduction at the exhibition, Pepsi managed to agree a deal with the USSR where Pepsi would become the very first American brand to be sold in the Soviet Union. However, there was one big problem. Because of controls the Kremlin put on their currency at the time, the Soviet ruble, it was actually illegal to trade their currency globally, meaning there was literally no international currency exchange market for the ruble, and thus it was essentially worthless outside the USSR. And Pepsi certainly didn't want to be stuck with profits that they couldn't take out of the Soviet Union. So, instead of selling Pepsi to the Soviet Union for cash, they agreed to use a barter system. For years, Pepsi accepted Stolichnaya Vodka as payments. 
And Pepsi also received exclusive rights to distribute this vodka in the United States. So basically, the Soviet Union got Pepsi concentrates, and in return, Pepsi got Russian vodka, which they could sell in the US and therefore make US dollars from it. And so this workaround seemed win-win, as Pepsi could sell their product in the Soviet Union whilst bypassing the currency issue. And for a while, this was all well and good, until 1979, where Pepsi became unable to sell enough of the vodka for this deal to make financial sense anymore. So they needed to figure out something else they could receive from the USSR instead. Ideally something more valuable, so Pepsi could very quickly sell it for dollars. Now, there is a long-standing story that in 1989, the Soviet government paid Pepsi by giving them a fleet of decommissioned warships. The idea was, Pepsi would be able to make money from selling the ships for scrap metal. And this was reported in the New York Times, saying, PepsiCo recently bought from the Soviets 17 submarines, cruiser, a frigate, and a destroyer. They are being resold for scrap. The head of Pepsi then joked to George Bush's national security advisor, we're disarming the Soviet Union faster than you are. And so, because of this warship deal worth hundreds of millions of dollars, articles have popped up saying that technically, Pepsi briefly became the sixth largest military in the world before they sold the ships for scrap metal. However, this isn't actually the case. Although Pepsi having its own navy fleet would take the meaning of cola wars to a whole new level, the actual truth seems to be that even though Pepsi considered this warship deal, they didn't go through with that. Instead, they drew up a new agreement for the Soviet Union to build Pepsi commercial freight ships instead, which they could sell or lease out. And ironically, all of this was completely irrelevant anyway, as the plan fell through when a few months later the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Pepsi did remain a huge presence in Eastern Europe still though, and in fact Russia was one of the handful of countries where Pepsi outsold Coca-Cola. And over the years, Pepsi expanded its presence in Russia. Like in 2008, PepsiCo bought the majority of shares in Russia's largest juice manufacturer, and then acquired another huge Russian brand and Wimbledon Foods, which made PepsiCo the largest food and beverage manufacturer in Russia. However, in 2022, that all changed after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and so Pepsi stopped manufacturing in Russia. And thus, Pepsi's unusual decades-long relationship with Russia was finally over. Before we get to the next chapter of the story, let's quickly talk about what's going on in pre Over the years, Pepsi became dissatisfied with simply selling beverages. They wanted to expand into snack foods, because they knew that their target customer was buying both soda and snacks at the grocery store at the same time. They were complementary products. So what if Pepsi sold both? But rather than starting from scratch in a new market, in 1965, Pepsi merged with the snack company Frito-Lay, and together they became a new corporation called PepsiCo. Between them, the brands had combined sales of over $500 million already, and within five years of forming PepsiCo together, they reached $1 billion in sales. This merger between Pepsi and Frito-Lay was a move that worked very well for both of them, as they knew teaming up to become one giant corporation would be the fastest way to expand into new markets and pull their resources to help grow across the world. What's interesting is that just a few years earlier in 1961, the Frito Company and the H.W. Leyen Company had been two separate businesses that merged together to form the Frito-Lay Company. And yet, just four years after that, they were merging with Pepsi to create PepsiCo. And so all of this really just illustrates how business actually works. Two successful companies merge together to form one even more powerful company that can then crush or acquire smaller competition. And this is basically how conglomerates get formed, which is why nowadays, 
you may be shocked to know just how many brands are owned by PepsiCo. Lay's, Gatorade, Cheetos, Aquafina, Tropicana, Quaker Oats, Mountain Dew, Doritos, Captain Crunch, Rockstar, and so many more. It'd be hard to go shopping and not buy something owned by PepsiCo. But as if dominating in food and beverages wasn't enough, PepsiCo even acquired three of the top 10 restaurant chains in the United States. Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC. Goes without saying, but as soon as they bought these restaurants, they required them to only serve Pepsi on beverages from their soda fountains. For example, KFC used to sell Coca-Cola, but had to immediately switch to selling Pepsi instead after the sale to PepsiCo. Ironically though, this strategy of acquiring fast food restaurants sort of backfired a bit. Firstly, the industry was very competitive and it ended up diverting a lot of PepsiCo's resources away from their more profitable products. But also the biggest problem was that by getting involved with some fast food chains, it made rival fast food chains not want to sell Pepsi. For example, take a chain like Popeye's Chicken. If they were to sell Pepsi in their restaurants, they'd be kinda supporting KFC because Pepsi owned KFC. So basically, PepsiCo's idea of owning fast food restaurants to drive up sales of their beverages wasn't really having the desired effect. And so they spun off all their main restaurants into a separate company. So technically, PepsiCo no longer owns them. However, this didn't stop PepsiCo trying to expand into other random industries. Like at one point, Pepsi acquired the sporting goods company Wilson. But once again, after a few years, they realized these other acquisitions were a bit of a distraction and went back to doubling down on beverages and snack foods. And so PepsiCo's profits continued to rise and everything seemed to be going great. Little did Pepsi know, they were about to create one of the biggest marketing disasters in history that would cause them to owe tens of billions of dollars and have very fatal consequences. In 1992, Pepsi ran a contest in the Philippines called Number Fever. They printed numbers on each Pepsi bottle cap ranging from 001 to 999. And every night, they would reveal a winning number on the evening news. If you had a Pepsi brand bottle cap with that number on, you could redeem it for a prize. Now, most of the prizes you could win were fairly small, but there was also a big grand prize, 1 million pesos, equivalent of around $50,000, which was well over 600 times the monthly salary in the Philippines at the time. Needless to say, winning that prize would be a completely life-changing amount of money for the average Filipino. So the contest became hugely popular. It reached a point where around half of the people in the Philippines were participating in the contest by collecting Pepsi bottle caps. But not only were people buying more Pepsi for a chance to win, some were even searching the streets or looking through trash, trying to find bottle caps that had been thrown away in case one of them had a winning number. Now, obviously, Pepsi had a budget for this campaign. And so the idea was they had a computer system to determine which numbers to print on bottle caps. As this way, they could make sure that only two bottle caps were printed with the number for the grand prize of 1 million pesos. That meant only a maximum of two people could win the big grand prize, and Pepsi had control over how much money they gave away during the whole campaign. And the campaign worked great. Pepsi sales massively increased in the country because everyone wanted a chance to win. And so Pepsi decided it was working so well, they would extend the contest by an additional <coughs> five weeks. However, this is where the problems began. The computer system they were using to determine which numbers to print on bottle caps had not been designed for the competition to run this long. And so suddenly extending the competition caused a glitch would have very drastic consequences. On May 25th, 1992, they announced the winning number of the 
1 million peso prize, number 349. Now remember, there were supposed to be two people who had the winning bottle cap number. However, instead of just two winners like Pepsi expected, because of this glitch, they had printed over 600,000 bottle caps with the number 349. So as you can imagine, when the winning number was announced, hundreds of thousands of people across the country began celebrating, thinking they'd just won a million pesos. Many of these people were in dire poverty, and this was going to change everything for them. All their struggles were finally over. People began partying in the streets, and hundreds began showing up at the Pepsi factory to claim their prize. It was chaos outside, and the police eventually had to show up. Meanwhile, Pepsi executives were panicking and scrambling to figure out what to do next. If they actually paid everyone with the winning bottle cap number the amount they were owed, it would cost Pepsi over 30 billion US dollars. It would literally bankrupt the company. So they instead announced the winning number was a mistake, but as a goodwill gesture, said that everyone who had a 349 bottle cap would be offered 500 pesos. This was the equivalent of about $18. A pretty big come down from the $50,000 they were sure they'd won. So, as you can imagine, people were incredibly angry and upset about this. Many began rioting in the streets. People were throwing Molotov cocktails into the windows of the Pepsi factory and bombing trucks. Tragically, these riots left many people injured and five people dead. A group of winners called Coalition 349 decided to get together and sue Pepsi. But in the end, Pepsi only had to pay a fine of 150,000 pesos, which was completely insignificant to them, especially since the campaign had brought in millions of dollars of profit. To many, it was seen as a giant billion-dollar corporation, giving people in poverty this glimmer of hope, and they're ripping it away. And just to add to the controversy even more, there were some newspapers that reported on a police testimonial from the time that claimed Pepsi had hired mercenaries to bomb their own trucks in order to make it look like Coalition 349 had done it and thus make them out to be thugs and damage their perception in court. Now, of course, Pepsi deny this, and it may well be the case that the police officer's testimonial was wrong. But either way, this whole incident is a very dark part of Pepsi's history. It was a genuine mistake by Pepsi, but their negligence had very real consequences. And this wasn't the only time that Pepsi got in trouble for running a faulty contest. In 1996, Pepsi started a campaign where you could exchange points for prizes from their Pepsi stuff catalog. You could earn points by buying Pepsi products or purchase points for 10 cents each. In the commercial for the contest, they claimed that for 7 million points, you could win a Harrier jet. This caught the attention of a business student named John Leonard. At the time, a Harrier jet was worth $23 million, and John realized that he could buy 7 million Pepsi points for $700,000. So clearly this was actually a great deal. After a few phone calls with investors, John got the money together and sent it in the paperwork to claim the Harrier jets. However, Pepsi claimed that their commercial was just a joke and never sent him his jets. So John decided to sue the company for false advertisement. In the end though, Pepsi won the case and they changed their commercial to include Just Kidding at the end and also increased the cost to 700 million points. So once again, Pepsi got away with that. However, to be honest, PepsiCo has a whole string of controversial ads. Like they made one for Mountain Dew that got described like this. It's being called the most racist commercial in history. The most racist commercial ever. And of course, more recently, who can forget the Live For Now Pepsi ad, where Kendall Jenner seems to end a riot by giving a police officer a Pepsi. At a time of huge, serious protests, including against police brutality, the idea of some mega-rich influencer handing over a Pepsi to suddenly solve everything just seems so tone-deaf. And to many, it just felt dismissive of people who'd been protesting for years, or even been abused or arrested. Or, as SNL put it, Um, I stopped the police from shooting black people by hitting them a Pepsi. I know, it's 
cute, right? However, despite having several terrible ads, Pepsi can also be credited with one of the greatest marketing campaigns ever. The ongoing rivalry between Coca-Cola and Pepsi is often known as the Cola Wars. And over the years, the two companies never held back from trying to knock one another down in their advertisements. They were the two biggest soft drink companies in the world, but Pepsi was always in second place. However, in 1975, Pepsi very nearly won the war when they introduced the Pepsi Challenge. This was an experiment where they filmed random participants doing a blind taste test. One cup had Coca-Cola, one cup had Pepsi but people didn't know which was which and were asked which one they preferred the taste of. On average, slightly more people chose Pepsi. So Pepsi began running massive ad campaigns telling the world that in blind taste tests, people prefer Pepsi. At first, Coca-Cola strongly denied this, saying that there was no way it could be true and Pepsi obviously had a biased experiment. But after doing their own blind taste tests, Coca-Cola got the same result. More people really did seem to prefer Pepsi slightly more when they couldn't see which drink was which. This all seemed to indicate the main reason Coke was number one in sales was just because of their brand loyalty. This made Coca-Cola so nervous that they came out with a formula called New Coke in 1985. And this new formula did score better than Pepsi in blind taste tests. But this completely backfired on Coke. They received thousands of angry letters and phone calls from fans who wanted the original Coke taste back instead. People hated the fact they'd changed the recipe, and eventually Coke were pressured into reverting back to Coca-Cola Classic. This was where Coke got lucky though. People were so happy and thankful to have the original taste back after it had been taken away that Coca-Cola seemed to massively increase brand loyalty. And people were no longer talking about the Pepsi challenge, they were talking about the fact that original Coca-Cola had returned. And so the brutal reality for Pepsi is that despite all the success they've had in the last 100 plus years, when it comes to the simple battle between Coke or Pepsi, Coke's brand is still the winner. And if you want to know the real reason why Coca-Cola will always beat Pepsi's brand, then click this thumbnail now to find out the dark secret to Coke's success.